Uh, we're going to be in the book of John as, a, as our series. If you can believe it or not, we are in the second to last chapter of this book. I cannot believe we made it this far. Uh, this has been an awesome read going scripture by scripture. Have you enjoyed going verse by verse through the book of John? I, I have found it very uh, incredibly refreshing to know the word the way we've learned it and then also see how it connects to the rest of the Bible. We are going to be in John chapter 20. Um, and we're going to be focusing on the resurrection. And Resurrection Sunday stands as a very center point of our faith. Um, and I just want to let you know it's because we can see that there is the power of the Lord that rests on Jesus Christ if it was to resurrect him from the dead. Amen? That's like, a, if there's any more power that you, you know, God can demonstrate, I don't know what it is. That's the greatest of all powers. Um, but I just want to remind you as we dive into this, we're going to look at this in kind of two different sections. We're going to look at the book of uh, John chapter 20 in two different sections in this way. We're going to see that the resurrection is one point evidence, but sometimes evidence is not enough. We're going to talk about the manifestation of that evidence, and that evidence comes to this way, our experience. Something can be true, and it can be true for somebody else, but if it's not true for you, then that truth can exist, but it doesn't mean as much to you. And that's where Jesus steps out of the tomb and out of the grave and back into his disciples' lives. I want you to, as we go through this scripture, put yourself in the position of the disciples who love Jesus, but maybe not fully understand what Jesus is doing, but are watching Jesus, learning from Jesus, and being fully led by Jesus. Does that not just sound like the church today? Have you ever just picked up the Bible and been like, I think I know what that means? And you're like, I'm going to go about my day as if I think I know what that means, Jesus. And I hopefully along the way, I'll fake it till I make it, maybe. And then Jesus will show me what it is. But that's just who the disciples are. They're us. They're us as we fall forward, as we crash forward into the love of Jesus Christ, fully knowing that his love is for us. So sometimes evidence is not enough. Sometimes we need to have that full experience, and that's what we're going to see. Also want to remind you, um, this is considered... A, a holiday to the early church. The day that Jesus rose again, he rose again, we know, being the first day of the week for the Jews and the Romans would be there listed as Sunday. And so we know that that was the day that he rose. And then the, uh, the future church, no longer being uh, Jewish in their identity, but identifying with Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, they chose to worship on Sundays, which was unusual. Most Jews would worship on Saturday, as we know. And even in the future, you would see in Islam, they would worship on Friday. Romans themselves would only worship once or twice twice a month. They would have designated days. So this was very unusual for these people who would be uh, associated with this area, with this region, and also with the Old Testament to start worshiping on Sunday. But it meant enough to them to wake up every Sunday morning and go to church for this one reason. My Jesus Christ was dead in the tomb, and my Jesus Christ rose, and he came back for me. That's why they would say it every day. They would say every Sunday was a, was a holy day. That's where we get the word holiday from. And so sometimes well, I can even think about this, even myself, what do I think of Sunday as I wake up in the morning? I think of Sunday as a great day where I get up and I, and I put on my Sunday best and I smell really good and I come to church and I hang out with all you wonderful folks and we have a wonderful time feeling good about being Christians. And then we leave here and we head to our various restaurants. You know, it's just a great feeling to leave church and go right to Cracker Barrel, right? And it's just a very holy kind of a feeling. And then when you're uh, spiritually full and then you're physically full and then you go home and you rest and you go, that's what Sunday is. But for the early church, they would tell us, no, that's not what Sunday is. Even though that's a wonderful feeling, that's the reason why we rest is Jesus Christ. The reason why we're here is because Jesus rose. 
And that would be a powerful moment. And, they, and the reason they would say this is because not only did uh, their life change when Jesus rose, the whole world as they knew it changed. The universe change. So join me in John chapter 20, verse 1, and we're going to unpack this as we go through. And once again, I said I broke this down in two sections. The first section is going to be the evidence section. So we're going to look at a lot of stuff. Look at verse 1. It says, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw the stone had been removed from the entrance. As we know uh, from the other gospel accounts combined that these ladies would get up in the morning and they would head down to the tomb to anoint Jesus' body with, uh, with basically really great aromatic oils. They would wrap him in gauze. So if you've ever seen, like, you know, you go to the store and you get the gauze strip, they would have these kind of linens in these strips and they would dip them in the oil and they would wrap it around the body to prevent the body from smelling bad through, uh, you know, through the rotting process and decaying process. And they would come and they would observe the body this way. It was a way of honoring the dead. And she and this lady, Mary Magdalene, and the other ladies did not know if they were going to have the ability to move the stone away from the tomb. Just so you guys know, when you walked up to a tomb, there would be a, a giant hole in front of that tomb, and there would be a huge circular rock that they would roll in there. They would dig a groove right in front of the tomb. So that way you could take this circular rock and just kind of roll it into place. And they did that because they were preventing grave robbers from, you know, entering in there. But little did they know that this grave had already been robbed. As they would get there, they were always wondering, how am I going to move? And just, you know, most of these stones weighed a ton and a quarter. They didn't know if the Romans would even consider helping them or if they could grab a couple of Jewish guys and push this ton and a quarter rock out of the way. But nonetheless, they wanted to honor Jesus, so they were going, right? But as you know, she gets there and the rock is gone, right? The stone is removed. And I want to let you know from the other gospel accounts, I like how they state this. The rock wasn't just like rolled out of the way. It was blown out of the way. It'd be one thing for you to go, oh, somebody moved the rock for me. That's very, very nice. How wonderful. No, this thing was blown out of the way, like forward. And I kind of love that because I always feel like there's a little bit of meaning in everything that the Lord does and what heaven does. And I love it because it's like, who is the, what is this stone to get in the way of Jesus resurrecting? What is the stone in, in the way of getting in the, uh, the evidence so that we can go and see that Jesus is no longer in the tomb? On top of that, there's an angel sitting on it when, when other accounts, when they get there. And I love that. It's almost like the angel was like, this thing, this silly little thing, this ton and a quarter thing, that doesn't mean anything to us in heaven. Jesus is written, or risen. Look at verse uh, two. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. Isn't that so, John? If you know anything, just you guys know, John's identifying himself. I'm Jesus's favorite. <laughs> Who wrote this book? John. Yes. And they said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. And so it just kind of shows you, even though that Jesus had spoken the words of, of resurrection to Mary and to the other disciples, they have no idea where Jesus is. They know that one day there will be resurrection. They just don't think resurrection will come the day that their Messiah has been murdered. So it shows you that we're in pretty good company when we pick up the Bible and we're going, I kind of get it, Lord, but I don't fully get it. And the Lord's like, that's okay. I'll reveal it to you. Look at verse three. And so Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. By the way, John is describing himself. And this is like, isn't this like two brothers? Isn't this like two guys that love each other? By the way, remember, when we record this for all time, when all the Christians, Peter, by the way, when all the Christians read this, they will read that you're slow and I'm fast. 
It just shows you how real. The, I, left that the, I love that the Bible left this in, that it showed guys for who they really are, right? Guys that rib each other. But isn't that great? Isn't that a typical guy move? But it shows us that these people were real people just like us. I know that I would do that to my friend. I know. Look at verse 5. And this is John. He bent over and looked in the strips of linen lining there, but he did not go in. And then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. And he saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. And the cloth was lying in its place, separate from the linen. And just so you know, it kind of shows you once again a little bit about the personalities. Isn't John the kind of guy to step back and look at the details and the big picture at the same time and kind of pull from that, you know, pull from the moment? Like, what is God really trying to say to me? What does Peter do? Get out of my way. And just goes charging in there, right? And that Peter's personality, it's all on display in here. But on top of this, I want to let you know something amazing is happening here. It, it, the way that it's, it's written here, you might not pick it up, but it's as if those, those strips of linen, that gauze that they would wrap the body in that was covered in oil, it was laying there as if the body was still there, but the body has been evaporated. So they're looking at this and they're like, if the grave was robbed, who would have kept even just the hands and the fingers and the feet and everything just so? Who would have had time for that in the middle of a garden that was guarded? Who would have time to rob this? And I just want to let you know, just to prove that Jesus Christ is the perfect man, after he came up, he had the head shroud still on. He took off this old laundry and he folded it and put it away. The women in this room go, he is the perfect man. I don't think once in my life I have ever taken an article of clothing off and immediately neatly folded it and put to the side. If you ever see Jackie faint, that's probably what happened. If my wife ever saw me take off clothes, but that's what it is. Jesus neatly fold. What grave robber would do this? But yet the Lord did this as all evidence to his people. Just to show you, you know, want to know something? I'm not here. I'm not even here. I'm not even concerned about the head shroud. I'm not concerned about the linens. I'm moving forward. And then look at verse 8. And finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. Now, before we get to verses 9 and 10, I want to unpack something for you that John is doing that is incredibly raw. He's actually exposing himself as a non-believer. If you look at the end of that verse, he says, he saw and believed. We have a lot of of um, theology and unpacking by scholars for 2,000 years, right? We've had a lot of time to think about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. But if you think about the disciples, they walked and talked with Jesus, and he told them of this moment, and yet maybe they did not see and they did not believe, but when they walked into the tomb, they finally went, aha, what he said is true. I was trying to track with him, but I, in my limited imagination, me in my limited knowledge, tried to put Jesus in a sandbox by saying, when he's talking about resurrection, what he's really talking about is maybe one day, someday later. But now that he's dead, I don't know what God's plan is, which means most of his people look at the crisis and their vision stops. They don't look through the crisis to see what God's going to do on the other side and how God's going to grow his people. How incredibly uh, in reinforcing to his own people is the ability to raise yourself from the dead. Now that I see, I believe. And you know what? That's going to change how I move when I pray, does it not? If, uh, if my God can raise himself from the dead, what else can he do? What can I lay at his feet that will stress him out? Nothing. And this is what John is saying in this moment. Guys, I got it wrong. Which puts us in this particular moment we're looking at the evidence. Look at the screen. Put up this point. Christ's resurrection proves he was God's son and was his plan for death. 
The evidence is real. The evidence is there. The tomb is not empty because it was trying to hold Jesus back and now he's out. The tomb is empty for us to go in and look and see he's no longer here. That exact information is for us to see that if he truly wasn't the son of God, could he raise himself from the dead? I don't believe so. And also too, if there was a plan for our death, what would it look like? It would definitely look like this. Somebody would have to pay for my death as I am a sinner and I am no longer good. So therefore that death had to be atoned for. There has to be a payment. Look at Romans 1, 4 below. It says, through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ. And I want you to read this Bible verse, not just like that's just the moniker, that's the title. Jesus Christ our Lord. That word Lord goes with a powerful meaning. It means our Lord and master. Our Lord and master over what? Death, life, everything you can think of under creation. The same God that said, let there be light can look into the tomb and said, let there be life. And it's no big deal. Those are both words of commands for the Lord and he owns both of them. The God that you are resting in, the God that you are praying to, the God that is coming to your life and walking alongside you when you go into the doctor's office and get that bad news or you get that phone call or you look at your bank account and you go, oh my goodness, is the same God that would say, I'm the God that said, let there be life. I'm the same God that said, let there be light. I can look into your situation and I can say, let there be whatever I want it to be. That should give you an incredible amount of rest to say, yes, Jesus, you've already done the heavy lifting. Let me look to you. Let me follow you. Let me observe you. And how can I do that? Because it was the same spirit of holiness that rests on Jesus Christ. Now is the same spirit of holiness that rests in me. The evidence is this. If he is the son of God, then he would be raised from the dead and he would be operating by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we see it here. But we operate in a different place. Look at Romans 3.23 on the screen. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's who we are. We are all sinners. Below that, it says, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our, once again, Lord, the master over our sin, our death, and our life. So that's who our Lord is. So when we come to Jesus Christ, we don't go pray, if you're into it, or maybe if you have the power, or maybe if you're caring. No, you are the Lord and master of my life. Lord, what do you say to my life? What do you say to my death? What do you say to my situation? Not what I can see, but what can you see, Jesus Christ? The disciples in this moment couldn't see the empty tomb, and yet the empty tomb was coming, was it not? So that we have to put in ourselves in our little finite worlds and our little small imaginations. Maybe I don't know, or maybe I can't see as much as Jesus Christ. We can admit that. But we can also say this, but because, because, and if you, if you guys get a chance, I really encourage you to go back to Wednesday's teaching. We did Psalms 22. But because I was locked up in my sin and I was locked up in my condemnation, I can sometimes fail to see what God sees because I'm a sinful creature down here. But then Jesus became my condemnation on the cross. This is what we studied in Psalms 22 and, and through 1 Corinthians. We said, he, because Jesus became my sin, you understand that Jesus didn't take on your sin, he became your sin? He became your condemnation. And now if you were standing in the tomb and you were looking at the body that became your condemnation, that body's no longer there. That means your sin and your condemnation evaporated with the death and burial of Jesus Christ. And now that when you go to the tomb, you can say this, I have no excuse but to come to the Lord because he is good, because he's the son of God, because he paid for my sin, and now my sin and my condemnation is gone. Guess what? I have direct access to a God who now sees me as holy. This is what the empty tomb means to us. 
The empty tomb means that we now have all the open door to say this to Jesus Christ by the, by the power of the spirit of holiness, I have eternal life. What else is God going to hold back from you? I mean, is there a greater gift than eternal life? And we look down and go, Lord, would you give me a healing? Well, that's way down here on the list of things that God needs to really do for us, right? I'd rather be sick and have eternal life than not have eternal life and be healthy right? You go down the list. We need to approach God in this way. The empty tomb is because God left the empty tomb to us. Continuing in this evidence, I want you to look at the screen. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 4 says this, for what I have received, pass on to you as first importance that Christ died for our sins, according to the scripture, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. If we could keep this uh, note on the screen, I want to re- bring you back to verse 9. Remember what I said about John messing up and not really believing? Look at verse 9. They did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. I want you to put you in your mind as we're reading these Scriptures. Look at this. They did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Not that he was going to rise from the dead. They didn't even understand the motivation of their Lord and Savior. Look at verse 10. And then the disciples went back to where they were staying. For us today, it's incredibly easy. If you look up at 1 Thessalonians 4.14 at the bottom of the screen, for us to just take this for granted. But for them, for them in the moment, for somebody in the middle of the storm, in the middle of the crisis, they did not take this easy. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring Jesus will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. You have to think about this. The reason why Jesus died on the cross was for us. And the reason why Jesus went down into the tomb was for our sins. And the reason why he was resurrected was to bring us back towards heaven. We are being being prepared through holiness for eternal life. And so everything that comes along with that is sprinkles on the ice cream cone, is it not? And I don't know if you've ever seen this. Sometimes Jackie and I, we get really bored and we watch YouTube and we watch these crazy things. I remember one time we watched this uh, puzzle championship. I Forgive me if you're into this. That was the most incredibly nerdy thing that I've ever seen in my life. I didn't even know they had puzzle championships. And I was like, is this real? Is this a real thing? But I'm, I might do it if I was asked. Nobody ever asked. I didn't even know these things happened. But they had two levels of the championship. One level was they would show the team the box cover you know, of the puzzle. And they go, here's your picture. And they would let them see it for 10 seconds only. They would remove it. And then they would dump all the puzzle pieces and say, go. And then one other level was they wouldn't even show them the box cover. And they would show the team, go, put this picture together. And they would time them. And the first team, obviously, that did it won. But do you know how incredibly hard that is to do, to put the puzzle together without looking at the model? How many times have we looked at our situation and tried to put together the pieces of our Christianity without looking at Christ? How many times have we prayed the situation, God, why have you abandoned me? God, why have you left me alone without looking at the cross, without looking at the tomb and saying, but I know you have a plan for me and this is what it looks like. It looks like you gracefully pulling me towards heaven. It looks like you not giving up on me. It looks like me not fully understanding the situation, but as I put it together, I know what the model is. And the model is the love of Jesus Christ that he showed me on the cross. So from there, by that love and by that power is how I'll pray. Yeah, I am a sinner. I am rebellious. I have blown it. Yes, I have disappointed you, Jesus, but you left the tomb for me. And in this moment, if you look at verse 9 again, they still do not understand from the scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. John is openly admitting, this is how we know that the Bible is so real because nobody would put their warts on display like this. John is saying, I was Jesus' best friend. We were best friends forever. He loved me more than anybody. 
We were, the, we were the greatest of friends, and yet everything he said, I didn't fully grasp because I didn't fully believe because I didn't fully know him. He's saying right here, I did not understand because I would not let myself understand. And in this moment, he's saying, God is bigger and stronger and more good than I could possibly imagine. He's leaving the tomb. He's leaving death behind. I also want to let you know, there's a scripture that I think he's thinking about at this exact time. It's on the screen. Psalm 1610. This is David, once again, having one of these incredibly uh, poignant messianic prophecies flowing through him. Just want to remind you, this is King David writing scripture for service. Can you imagine if a president came in here and said, I'm going to lead worship today, and this is my verse for today? This is King David saying, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you let your holy one see decay. This is further evidence that the resurrection is good because God is good. As you can see right there, this is evidence. The reason why this whole Psalm 16 exists is for this one reason. It's to prove that God is good. He would never let a good man go down to the grave and rot. And I will let you know, it kind of give you like a little thing so you can see how this works. I don't know if you remember the story of Lazarus as Jesus resurrected Lazarus. On what day was Lazarus resurrected? The fourth day. And by Jewish standards, I don't know if you remember, remember the women, Jesus was like, roll the stone away. And the women were like, no, 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 he's already started to rot. The body's gone. They couldn't even conceive in their head that maybe when they call Lazarus forward, he wouldn't come back as a rotting corpse. He would come back as a fully, like, full of flesh and smelling good corpse, right? Like, it wouldn't call, call forth a zombie. He would call forth somebody that God get breathed life into, right? But what day did Jesus say he would rise on the third day? Because that's before they would say that the, the decay would set in. And Jesus is saying right now, and God is saying, David is saying, and even John is saying right now, because we know that Jesus was good, God didn't let his body go to decay. Because he was too good for it. And when you think about the perfect man, was he too good for rotting and decay? Absolutely, by God's standards. And he's saying this, I want you to see, and I think this is what John is saying. I had Jesus Christ, and I had the scripture, and I knew the scripture, and I looked at Jesus Christ on the cross, and I still missed it. But praise the Lord that he keeps moving forward in my life. Amen? And so that's what it is. No matter what I think or what I feel, God is still good. And that's a moment that you can see. All the events in the world would change, not just for John, but for all of us, because God is good. This brings us to our next slide. If I acknowledge that Christ conquered my death, then I must affirm him as Lord over my life. And we've established that word Lord. I'm going to read that for you one more time. If I can acknowledge that Christ conquered my death, which is easy for us to say sometimes, Lord, forgive me of all the bad stuff I've done. Thank you. I've got salvation, fire insurance. I'm out of hell. It's great. But then comes the next part. I must affirm him as Lord over my life, master over my life, master over even what I think and feel, master over my imagination, master over my crisis and my condition. That's a very, that's a very challenging uh, line right there, to let the Lord lead me even out of my own ignorance. Now we move from evidence, and now we're going to move to personal experience. Because like I said, knowing that Jesus was resurrected is not good enough. That could be great for somebody else, but let's talk about us. Join me in verse 11. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and at the other at the foot. And they asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. 
There's a couple things of note here that I find very fascinating about Mary. First, I don't know if you remember Mary Magdalene's story. When Jesus had found her, you guys can remember she was like a woman with a bad reputation, but she also was a woman filled with seven evil demonic spirits. And so in this moment, you can see she's kind of comfortable with talking to angels. I don't know if you've ever read the Bible. Anytime a guy encounters an angel, what does the guy do? He hits the deck. He's like, oh my gosh, what is this? And I don't know what you think angels look like, but they're not blonde and have like, like cool white outfits and speak with English accents like the movies. That's not the situation. For all we know, they had blazing white hair and a fiery sword in their hand and you know, maybe wings that encompass the whole room. And if you saw that, you might do the same thing as these guys is hit the deck and start worshiping. And then what do they always say? Don't worship me. No, 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 not me. You need to worship the Lord. And you're like, you, you're not the Lord. There's something more amazing than you. And in this particular moment, you can see she's had dealings with spirits because her reaction is just to talk to them. I wouldn't have done that. But she's in this particular moment. She's like talking. You know why? Because she's dealt with bad spirits. So she knows who the good ones are. She can tell the difference. And you look at their tone of surprise. Woman, why are you crying? You can, you can read that, but there's a, you know, on the text and go make him say it gently. But I actually think they're saying it with a tone of surprise. Didn't you just spend three years with Jesus? Weren't you being prepared for this moment? Weren't you listening? That's what that tone is right there. And look what she says, her reaction. Lord, they have taken my Lord away, and I don't know where they have put him. I always wonder, too, why she didn't ask more questions. Like, if you're already calm and cool in this situation, wouldn't it have been easier? If anybody knew other than Jesus where Jesus was, couldn't you have asked him? Spoiler alert, he's right behind her. Look at verse 14. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. You could say that she didn't believe that it was Jesus. Verse 15, he asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? I always thought about this particular line from Jesus because I think it's a challenging word from Jesus to say, um, what what did you think was going to happen? I'm going to go a little bit deeper in this. Who are you looking for? Where did you think my love was going to take us? Standing in a situation, have you ever been just wrought with tears and just sobbing, and Jesus has been there the whole time? You doubted, you feared, but then you find Jesus has been there holding your hand, pouring out peace. It was the, the, it's like standing in the desert, and you're right behind you is a waterfall, and you're like, I'm so thirsty. Well, it's you that's looking the wrong way. The waterfall never moved, right? So all you have to do is turn and do what? Lean into it. Lean into it. Now look at this next part. This is one of the most beautiful parts of the Bible. Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will go get him. I don't know how big Mary is, but she's saying she's going to do it on her own. I'll go grab, I don't know if you're, I have a six-year-old, a soon-to-be six-year-old, and when his body goes limp in the middle of Walmart, it's, I mean, he's like, what, 40 pounds, 50 pounds? That's hard to deal with. I don't know how she's going to pick up a Jesus, but that's how much love she has for Jesus. I'm going to go pick up his body right now myself. But look at verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned to him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbani. Now, I love this particular moment because I don't know if you have the kind of Bible that describes it. It actually says they're talking in a local dialect. They're in Jerusalem, you guys understand, but they're from northern Galilee, right? They're up from on top of the Sea of Galilee. And so now they're down here in Jerusalem and they're speaking in the Jerusalem language and so, or, or dialect or maybe even tone or accent. But when she hears the gardener speaking in her mind, she thinks of the gardener. She hears a Jerusalem man, right? But then he turns to her and he says, Miriam, which is closer to the dialect of where she's from. 
And then she turns and said, Rabbi, they switched to Aramaic real quick. I want to give you the profound moment. There's a lot of Cracker Barrel in this service today. Um, I was at Cracker Barrel once with, with Jackie, and we were having a good time, you know, getting ready for the holidays. And, you know, have you ever been to Cracker Barrel in the front store in the holidays? It's like super awesome, like chock full of Christmas stuff. And I remember there was this couple that was in front of us, and they got called, you know, for their, for their table. And uh, the guy, her name was Sheila. And I remember the guy was, was, had a really thick southern accent. And he was just like, Sheila, Sheila, our table's ready. And she's just trying on all the shawls and putting on all the hats and picking up every Christmas ornament, probably trying to, to buy it. And he's probably trying to hurry her up so she doesn't buy it. And he's like, Sheila, Sheila, Sheila. And she doesn't even turn. And we're all looking like, Sheila, if you go, we can go. We're the next table. And then all of a sudden he stops and he goes, Junebug. And she goes, yeah, honey. And then she ran up. <laughs> And that's that moment. There's, some people have that language. There's, there's personal, uh, intimate relationship. And the only reason why that chick clicked in her head, because there's only one person in her life that probably calls her Junebug. But she knows him, and she knows him by his voice. And in this moment, Jesus did that to Miriam right now. He said, he spoke, in that Gal- he spoke in that Jerusalem language. He spoke in that dialect. And then he switched it over real quick, and he said, Miriam. I'm going to marry him. And she said, Rabbi, it's you. And they switch and they go, we looked at each other. And then there was like that eureka moment, right? And then what does she says? Look, at, uh, just you guys can see verse 17. Jesus quickly says, do not hold on to me for I have yet ascended to the father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. I love this particular moment, too, because it's a little bit lost in this text, but she's immediately dove to his legs and wrapped her arms around him. And she's not holding on for her dear life. She's holding on for his dear life because she lost him. But Jesus is moving to a new particular place, and he's trying to show her a new thing. He says, no longer am I going to be local. No longer are you going to be crying and trying to find me somewhere in the garden. I'm going to give you my spirit. And if you look at the way that Jesus is talking here, he's talking in a different way that he's never talked. Remember, before he always called his apostles his disciples. And for the first time, he calls them what? Brothers. Why? Because he's partaken in our death. And as the firstborn of the undead, he's now saying, I am now co-heirs with you. Why? Because we are going to walk through this veil of life and death together, and I'm going to leave you into life everlasting. And so here I am. I'm now calling you for the first time, my brothers. Look what he says at the end. I'm ascending to my father and your father. The empty two means what? We have access to a new father in a new way. And then he also says to my God. Isn't that interesting for Jesus to say my God? Well, whose God was he on earth? In fact, we saw in Psalms 22 on the Wednesday teaching, he actually called God his God. Yeah, I, I, have, I have not had anybody since my birth from Mary except for you, my God. This is what he says. I've relied fully on you, my God. Why did he do that? So that one day we could stand shoulder to shoulder with Jesus Christ as we walk into heaven and he can say, I walked with these people. I felt what they felt. I hurt like they hurt and I died like they died. And now that I've paid for their death, guess what, Lord? I'm walking all these people. You said they would be my inheritance. I'm claiming them. Every single person here is a brother, sister in Christ because Jesus said, Lord, give me my inheritance. I kept my vows. You are the inheritance of Jesus Christ, and he is proud to march you up to heaven, which brings us now to the next slide, our experience. Christ's resurrection shows us that he holds us by the Spirit. We are brothers and sisters by the Spirit. We are alive by the Spirit, 
and God will hold us forever by the Spirit. You see, Mary's trying to hold on to Jesus, and Jesus is saying, no, 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 you got it all wrong. I'm going to hold on to you, and I'm going to hold on to your brothers, and I'm going to hold on to them, just so you guys know, as I send the disciples out, just, you're going to see in the future when you go through the book of Acts, is that I'm going to send them out across the world. And as they go around the world, even though I'm Jesus Christ, one man, my spirit goes wherever they go. So Mary, if you're in one part of the world and Peter's on the other part of the world, the same spirit holds them tightly. I'm going to prove it to you. Look at this verse. Romans 8:11. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Jesus can rob our graves, but who can rob anything out of the hands of God? I want to ask you this question. How much does Jesus, or how much does God love Jesus? If you were just to sit and think about and define it, the same, the same trinity that has been in relationship forever, outside of the condemnation that was on the cross, how much are God and Jesus in love with each other? Never a failure between them, right? Perfect in their relationship, in their lockstep. Never an argument. Never a challenge on where to eat after church. Never once, never once have they ever been out of line from each other. And that same spirit that would reach down into the tomb, how much love did God have for Jesus when he raised him up? I, I don't know if it's never been recorded, but I would hope that, or I would think it would say like this, I'm so glad you're back. I'm so glad you're back. I missed you. I loved you. I never want to be cut off from you again. And no, they will never be cut off again. But I want to say that same spirit and that same love and that same power that would raise Christ from the dead is now holding on to you. How, how tight will you be held? If Jesus Christ will never taste death again, how powerful and how deep is that love that holds on to you right now? It's the same power. Where's the word? The same power, the spirit of him who raised Christ from the dead is no longer a, pre, a people that are looking at the flesh. We're no longer looking at the natural. We're looking at the supernatural. We are no longer those people. Why? Because our love isn't even natural. Our love that we experience from God is supernatural. The power is supernatural. The calling on our life is supernatural. When we walk from here to heaven, that's supernatural. The only thing that separates us from the rest of the people in Sebastian is the supernatural. We are all broken sinners, except we have a supernatural love that grips down on us so tight so we don't have to hold on to Jesus and onto his legs and go, Jesus, please don't leave me. He goes, what are you talking about? I'm never going to let you go again. That is what it means to be led by a spirit life. To be held by a spirit life. We are holding on to something bigger than our failures. We're holding on to something bigger than our sin. We're being held by Jesus Christ himself by the power of his spirit. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. And I love that. It's an interesting moment, right? God would use a woman, who just so you guys know, this is a very special moment in history. Women's uh, testimony wasn't admissible in a local court. So if a woman saw a murder and we would look to this woman and say, hey, woman, will you go give a testimony in court? The moment she walked into court, they would go, her, her testimony isn't admissible. And yet Jesus says, this is the first person I'm going to speak to, and this is the first person that's going to proclaim. It shows you what God says. God doesn't really look at the, at the person in their situation. He looks at the heart, and he looks at the message on their heart. And he says, woman, go speak my truth. Go speak my life. Go speak my way. I love how God sees all of us. Now, look at verse 19. 
on the evening of the first day of the week, which is another Sunday, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. I love this because they already know Jesus is resurrected. You understand that, right? Mary's preached it to them, right? Peter and John saw the empty tomb, but where are they? Are they out proclaiming the truth? Jesus is risen, Jesus is risen. Where are they at? Oh, but that's okay. Jesus is risen. But guess what? I got to hide because maybe God won't take care of me. He's called me as a disciple. He's called me to be the messenger. But where am I doing? I'm hiding that light under a bushel. Is that what the Bible told us to do? No, but yet does the locked doors keep Jesus out? No, he pushes right through their ignorance, doesn't he? Sometimes we can put up walls and sometimes we can be isolated for our own protection. And I just want to let you know, wherever you think you are, wherever you think you're doing, if it's not good enough for Jesus, he's going to press right on through. And then when he shows up, does he show up with words of condemnation? What are you doing, you fruit loops? Get out there. Is that what he says in the scripture? No, he says, peace. Peace, you fruit loops. No, he says, peace. He says peace. He's, he gives them a, pretty much an everyday greeting, but it comes with a, no, a new way. It's pretty, basically saying, I'm giving you my peace, is he not? The evidence is not enough to know that Jesus was resurrected, but the experience is this. Even though Jesus was resurrected from the tomb, he was resurrected to us. He was resurrected to us, which brings us to our next point. Christ's resurrection leads us to a personal experience that ends in ultimate peace. Just think about this. No one in... Jerusalem at this time is walking around going, I suffered, I died, I was resurrected, and by the way, I'm, I'm pushing my way into you hiding from me. I'm pushing into the room to say, I love you, have my peace. You have to understand that the resurrection by itself is not enough. He was not resurrected from that tomb. He was resurrected to you to lead you. To lead you into what? The ultimate peace. The ultimate peace of what? God loves you. They were hiding in their failure. They were hiding in their ignorance. They were looking at Jesus and trying to dictate to the situation what was going on. Yes, Jesus is awesome. Yes, he's powerful. Yes, he does great things in other people's life, but he kind of forgot about me. And yet Jesus pushes right through that ignorance and goes, guess what? I'm here. Let's begin. And what does he do? He shows them everything. He goes, look at this. Look at the wounds. I did it all for you. I did it all for you. No words of condemnation, which brings us to Isaiah 26 on the screen. It says, if you will keep, uh, you will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. You know what that trust word goes into? Not just trusting because they are who they say they are. It's because you know them. The evidence of the Bible isn't good enough. You have to know it for yourself. You have to experience it for yourself. I heard this, uh, this word kind of like this way. Um, I knew somebody who was in the foster care for system for a long time, and then they were finally adopted by someone. And I said, you know what manifestation means, Joey? And I said, oh, no, but I think you're going to tell me. And they said, it's knowing that a mother's, nothing is as powerful as a mother's love. You can watch all the Disney movies. You can watch all the old black and white movies and know that to be true. That's a, that's a constant of truth. But if you've never experienced, then it's not true for you until the day that you get adopted. And then it's true for you. And then guess what? That truth that exists is now true for you. You're living by it. And Jesus is saying that in Isaiah 26, get to know me. The tomb has been empty and it's been empty for you. I have left the tomb for you. I want you to experience the ultimate peace because it's the peace that I give you. 
Look at verse 21, continuing, it says, and again, Jesus said, peace be with you as the Father has sent me. I am sending you. I was sent to you. I wasn't just sent to you in birth at Christmas. I was sent to you from the tomb. And now guess what I'm doing? I'm sending you. I'm sending you by what? By the same power that raised me. Is there anything more flattering that God can do besides just offering you salvation and sanctifying you than him picking you up and go, and now carry my banner everywhere you go? Put on a name tag for Jesus Christ and be my representative. There can be great, no greater, higher like, adjective of love to say, say, now be me everywhere. If I ever looked at my qualifications, if I ever looked at my resume, I would be, if I was used to be like, all right, uh, I'm going to pick, Joey, why don't you just hang in the back? Well, I'll get to you later. No, but he goes, the same love and the same power and the same forgiveness that I'm pouring into you, now go be that in the world. Now look at verse 22. And with that, he breathed on them and they received the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. I want to touch on this just for a second. I believe this is the moment that they officially got saved. I know they've been walking and talking, but they did not believe, right, up until this moment. And now Jesus is standing in front of them as the risen Christ who died in their sin. And what does he blow on them? The life of breath or the breath of life, right? And what does that breath of life do? That breath of life brings them into what? A new creation. The first time God breathed on man, what happened? He made the dust come to life. And the second time he breathed on man, he made a dead soul come back alive. In this right now, the breath is the experience of life. And God is saying right now, we're not going to be forgiveness dispensers, but we're going to bring the new life and the new creation and the new uh, everything, everything that is new that is coming out of the forgiveness that we received on the cross. And now we are new people. We are going to bring that forgiveness to the world. And by that, the world will know we have Jesus Christ. We are not dead in our sins. We are not dead in our unforgiveness. We are not bitter people. We are people that have been completely resurrected through the power and forgiveness of Jesus Christ. And now we bring that into the world. And so he's saying right now, keep your mind fixed on a forgiving God because guess what? You are a new creation that is led by the Spirit. I'm going to let you know something. It's easy for me to forgive one trespass from one person if I realize that the whole of my life, the whole of my mistakes, the whole of my failures evaporated in the dead body of Jesus Christ in that tomb. And Jesus Christ has now cast my condemnation as far as the east is from the west and forgets my sins and remembers them no more. And who am I? I'm a person who is now light, free, excited, doing cartwheels between here and heaven. Because why? Because God loves me and doesn't condemn me. Now look at verse 24. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the 12 was not with the disciples when Jesus came. And so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. Note that. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And a week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Mind you, this is another Sunday. So they're always locked up on Sunday and Jesus is showing up. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side, stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said, my Lord and my God. It's the first time that any of the disciples have declared it. Jesus was their, was their leader. He was their shepherd. It's the first time that they have said these words since the resurrection, my Lord and my God. 
But I want you to notice this moment. Jesus turns and says this most amazing sentence, and we can kind of miss it. He goes, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Now, that can sound very wonderful, and if you've watched any of the old 1970s movies of Jesus when he stands out there and says it, he says it really poignantly. But right here, he's actually kind of chastising, in a way, Thomas. You heard the words of Peter. You heard the words of John. You heard the words of Mary. What do you think they were doing? You think they were making up stories about me? Do you think the gospel is a lie? He's saying it took you seeing to believe, but blessed are those. Those are us in the room right now. We weren't there. We can't run the videotape. We can't see the Jesus moment. But do we believe? Yes, because we know Jesus by his heart because the same Jesus that ministers to us through the Bible and through the word is that same Jesus that would be resurrected. And in this moment, he's saying to him, he's like, guess what? For all of eternity, you'll be known as the person that didn't believe the gospel until you experienced it for yourself. But if you knew me, you should have known and you should have been blessed. And I love it because he still says to us, I want you to know something that Mary, Thomas, I was listening. I wasn't far away. The moment he walked in the room, he said, peace be with you. And he went, boom, Thomas, I have a word for you. If you're in this room right now and you feel like you're somehow far away from the cross or you're far away from the tomb or you're even far away from Jesus Christ yourself, you're not. The Lord is ministering to you all the time through his word, through his worship. He's saying to you right now, I know exactly what you need. Are you listening? Peter was the kind of guy that was just like rushing and rushing and crashing forward and the Lord sought him in his situation, right? And Mary's crying through her tears and not believing. And what does he do? He puts his hand on her and says, Miriam, What does he do for Thomas? I struggle to believe. And he goes, Thomas, I'll give you everything you need to believe. But understand this, it was because of your ignorance, not because the evidence wasn't good enough. Right now, you are the same as me. God's been watching us. He's been listening to us. He's been ministering to us. And he's calling us into a supernatural relationship. Are we looking at the supernatural evidence? You are surrounded by a church of people in this room right now that are no no like mistakes. There's nothing but miracles in this room. Dead people have been raised to life by what? The love of Jesus Christ. I have been forgiven from my sins and now I've been put in the position of standing in the pulpit. If you knew every sin I ever committed, you'd be like, get this guy out of here. But the Lord looked inside of me and said, I will raise this dead man to life. And then on top of that, he will become my message. I don't deserve this. Every time I step up here, I go, Lord, do not come up here without me. Do not let me preach the word without the Holy Spirit. I cannot do this because the same salvation, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead now dwells in me. That's the only way I'm going to get up and preach this word because I can acknowledge for myself, I, like John, have not always believed, have not always been good, have not always even heard the word of God. I've been holding the blessings of God and still sinned in his face. And the Lord still pressed into me and said, I forgive you. And then I look at him and I say, you are worthy, I am not worthy. And that's what the empty tomb means to me. Now look at the end of this chapter. And we're going to close on this particular section. It says here, and Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The presentation of this chapter has been one of this. First, they gave us the evidence, and then they showed us what the personal experience would look like. You cannot walk in this room and just say that you're a Christian because you love the evidence because the evidence isn't good enough. It can't be true until it's true for you. 
So first you have to examine the evidence, but then you have to experience it for yourself. The Lord says, taste and see that the Lord is good. That's a challenge to all of us. Take everything that you have, everything that you're wrestling with the Lord, cast it at his feet and say, what is it that you're going to do, Lord? I can't see it. I'm just this lowly creature that's stuck in my own sin, stuck in my own failure, and I want to push forward, but I want to see what you can do. And the Lord says, good, let me get out of the way and do the heavy lifting. And then by that, we can have peace. And now that we know that he's for us and not against us and we have peace, now we can do one other thing. We can know that we are operating in the spirit, living by the spirit, for the spirit. We now have authority. Authority to go into the, to the throne room of God and pray the prayers. Lord, it's not my will, but your will. But if, Lord, if you could handle this situation, if you could take care of this, I know you're for me. On the screen is these two verses I want to show you. John chapter one, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. That's the very Bible that you hold in your hand. Do you know that? Jesus Christ, this whole Bible is the story of Jesus Christ, but I want you to read it in a different way. In the beginning was the promises of God and the promises was with God and the promises was God. The very goodness that you're receiving from every single word of, that is in the scripture is Jesus Christ saying, I am who I say I am, and my, what I am is your love. Look at the end. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life. He's saying to you right now, the same person that spoke life into existence is the same person that looks down into your broken soul and speaks life to it once again. Do you believe? Does he have the power? More importantly, does he have the care and love? Last thing we're going to do is we're going to pray this prayer together. And I want you to see the words on there. It says, my prayer to my God. He's not a God. He's not just a powerful God. He's your God. We can't belittle the work on the cross because you can't say that we're not good enough for the cross because for the cross, Jesus Christ died. For our sins, for your sins, for my sins. And so when we pray this prayer together at the very end here, I want you to see that we're praying a prayer in this belief of this, that the vows that Jesus made to us on the cross and out of the tomb is the vows that he made to us and we believe and we receive. So together, let's pray. I believed you. You loved me enough to send your word to die on the cross for me. And now as he is resurrected, I will be resurrected in him. I have peace. Amen.